All right, good morning. You know when a pastor sits down, it's going to be a very long message. <laughs> very long. Um, if you don't know, or if you're new, or you're visiting, we are going to tackle the um, very neutral, non-polarizing subject of same-sex marriage, the SCOTUS decision, etc. Um, and so if you do have a child that maybe you don't want to be in here, um, we will not judge you if you get up right now and walk them out. On the other hand, in five minutes, if you get up and walk out, we will judge you. And I want you to be very aware of that. Um, <clears throat> so long story short, I mean, this is like a pretty complicated issue. Can I get an amen on that one, right? So how many of you want to be me right now? Anybody? Like, nobody wants to be. Yeah, we got one person over here, a high school student, who's like, yeah, I'd like to get up and say a few things. And... Uh, we all have a lot of opinions, and so I just, be gracious with me, so uh, it's pretty clear that I'm not going to make everybody happy. My personal goal is to offend everybody. I feel like if I can do that, at least we'll be on some level playing field here. Um, but there are so many different ideas on the spectrum of this issue, and uh, I, you know, just simply, I want to um, help you and uh, think more like God thinks feel more like God feels, and act more like God might act. So um, I have, I think, six introductions to this sermon. Uh, there's a lot of ground to till before we plant the seed. And uh, I want to start off, I want to tell you about an event that happened this week. Um, one of my daughters uh, called her sister a not nice name. Duh. And uh, so we, um, I sat down with her, and I was trying to explain to her why we don't do this. And I didn't want to just talk to her head. I somehow wanted to communicate to the heart of a little girl. And uh, so I said, sweetie, pause. And I said, Jesus, can you please give me a helpful answer that might sink a little deeper into her soul? So here's what I, I told her. I said, sweetie, when God made you, he put you into our family. And he put you here for a reason. And he wants you to make this world more beautiful so that everything you touch should be more beautiful when you leave it. And so I want to ask you this question, um, sweetie, did your words make your sister feel more beautiful? And she said, no. And I said, sweetie, um, there's so much ugliness in this world. There's ugliness everywhere, but Jesus has made you and created you to enter into this darkness and to bring beauty and light and everywhere you go from here on out, baby girl, look, this is what I want you to know. You're created to make this world more beautiful. I want this world to be more beautiful with every word you say. Every person who leaves your presence, there should be more beauty in this world. Now, is that going to translate to the heart of a little girl? You bet. Like, it just went past her head right deep down in her heart. And here's the reason I tell you this. <clears throat> I'm already going to offend some of you right now, so let's just go at it. Whether you are crazy liberal, crazy conservative, whether or not you love SCOTUS's decision, or you are a hyper-fundamentalist conservative, by and large, the vast majority of people, here's what I found, your deep desire is to make this world more beautiful. Most people, yes, there are some on the liberal and conservative end who are just flat-out jerks and idiots. We're not talking about the majority, okay? We're talking about the, or the minority. We're talking about the majority of people. You, when you see injustice... You want to deal with it. When you see a lack of love, you want this world to be more beautiful. Like, this is your heartbeat. And as I say that, um, there is a commonality that we have because we're made in the image of God. We want goodness, justice, beauty, righteousness to reign. 
And so if you are the hyper-conservative fundamentalist who's talking to the most liberal person on the planet, chances are their motive is not to destroy people and make the world more ugly. But they truly believe that they are creating more beauty and love and justice in this world. Um, super liberal um, uh, person. You meet a Christian. And yes, there are Christian bigots and there are Christian closed-minded people. But the majority of people that I know and that I talk to, they do not want to increase more hate in this world. They actually want beauty and justice and righteousness to reign. Now, it's, I think personally, it's really hard to be mad at somebody when you know their motive deep down in their heart is to make the world a better place. But here's what I know. We fundamentally disagree on how that's going to happen. Can I get an amen from somebody, right? Well, one person considers ugly. The other person considers uh, not so much. Well, one person considers beauty. The other person says, no, that bothers me. I mean, it is a very tense, heated thing going on um, in the church, in the world. And so here's what I want to do. I want to speak, uh, introduction number two, idealistically with you for a moment, okay? Uh, idealistically, this would be my, my dream, and I'll read it to you. A homosexual couple should, should be able to walk in the doors of the village church and experience genuine, heartfelt kindness and be invited out to lunch after church as if they are indeed more valuable than all the treasures of the world. A homosexual couple should be able to listen to my sermon with an open mind, because no one has perfectly arrived. Amen? Yeah, a couple of minutes. A tolerant heart, because true love allows disagreement. And a loving spirit. So let me get selfish for a moment. A preacher should be able to stand up or sit down in the pulpit, preach directly from the word of God to an audience of people who are all over the spectrum on this issue, and all should listen carefully with an open mind, tolerance to different ideas, and a spirit of love toward the man. Even if what he preaches is not what you believe, or even if he says it in a way that bothers or offends you. Can I, can I just be honest, like, as a dude? Like, take off this lens that I'm the pastor, and somehow you can just throw darts at me. I, I don't know too many pastors who are just big fat jerks okay most pastors want when they get done preaching everybody to like them right and i'm in this quandary where some of you are not going to like me most of you are probably going to be bothered being by, bothered uh, at me by something i say or how i say it and like i'm in the most difficult position right now and as a pastor i'll be honest like just my personality like i'm up for the challenge but i can tell you this i have no desire to upset you I have no desire to make you unnecessarily mad. My deepest desire is to love all of you really, really well, and I hope you know that. And if we are going to be liberal or conservative, we should be open-minded enough that we can sit down and listen to somebody that we maybe not 100% agree with. Can I get an amen on that one? Is that easy enough? So give me grace, but my desire is to love every one of you very well, despite wherever you may be at. If any of these scenarios uh, make you uncomfortable, I want you to hear me. You are a part of the problem. There, there is a, a word, my, one of my favorite words, that I think summarizes what's happening. Uh, we'll just say, uh, on Facebook and in the American relational experience on the SCOTUS issue. And here's the word, vitriol. 
just a deep venom from one side to the other. And Christians, don't just sit here and take the, the victim mentality. You're dishing it as much as they're dishing it, okay? And so back and forth is this mutual vitriol, venom toward each other. And it's kind of just mind-blowing. The reason I didn't preach a sermon for the first two weeks after the decision, even though I probably would have said the same thing, is because I needed a couple weeks for everyone to just chill out. Okay? I need you all to get past the emotion because I, I don't want to just like preach and have everybody go, amen, right? I actually want to win your head, your heart, and your hands, and I want all of us, despite where you're at, to move in a much better, closer, God-honoring direction as much as it depends on us, okay? And so that's why I waited on some of this stuff. Some of you are like, you're not a real pastor if you don't preach on it right away. And I'm like, I'd rather be heard than make a point. Like a million times over. I'd rather start a really biblically grounded, God-honoring discussion with people who are a little bit past the anger and the frustration than just get up and rant. Although, of course, you know me, I'm going to rant here a little bit. Um, So my goals. Number one, I want to glorify Jesus in everything I say. I want the name of Jesus to be lifted up. I want Jesus in heaven to be like, yay, I like everything you said. That is my big goal. Um, number two, I want to love you well, meaning the most liberal person on the planet who might be listening to the podcast or who's sitting in this room and the most hyper-fundy conservative person sitting in this room or listening to this podcast. I want to love all of you really, really well while Jesus is happy. I want to challenge your heads to think differently. I want to reveal your heart, and I want to encourage your hands to live in a way that God would want you to live. And uh, I hope that you are in a position where you're ready to receive a little bit and we can move toward these. Um, here's an overview of what I'm going to do. Um, time might constrain some of this, but first, as a part of my introduction, this is introduction number four, I have three questions. Um, I'm going to ask the question, what is your authority? The reason we have to ask this question is because there will be no true dialogue or empathy until both sides of this issue can understand the answer to this question. Okay? This is necessary. Um, we're going to answer the question, what is marriage? We're going to deal with a short but pretty difficult Bible lesson. And then we'll have a couple different closings. Um, a word to homosexuals, a word to Christian and non-Christian LGBT supporters, and a word to conservatives. And then a so what for pastors, conservatives, liberals, and history. Sound good? Anybody else want to get up here and preach on this? Anybody? Y'all good? You're like, yeah. <laughs> Kirk's like, I'm out of here. No, it's good. Um, three questions. Number one, are you tolerant? For real, are you? You say you are. I'm assuming, since you are here or listening, that you have the capacity to listen to ideas that disagree with your own ideas without calling somebody a mean name. Are you tolerant? I mean, just look back on your Facebook posts. Have you called anyone a name? If so, you are officially intolerant. So I want to um, have a moment. I want to talk to conservative Christians who believe in a um, traditional definition of marriage. Hear me. How you can look at somebody without the spirit of God and call them a name to their face, generally on Facebook or behind their backs, is completely beyond me. Stop it. Stop it. That's called slander. I mean... You will never and should never expect somebody who does not have the Spirit of God to love or act like somebody who has the Spirit of God. And since when have you ever changed your mind because somebody called you a name? Has anybody ever just called you something and you've been like, oh, that was really mean. I'm going to change my entire view on that. No. When you call someone a name, you dig down, you get defensive, and you fight. So what do you, what do you want to do really? Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? you want to make an enemy or do you want to win somebody to your cause? 
If so, calling somebody a name is not how it's going to be done. So let me shift gears. Can I talk to you, the LGBT community and those of you who are sympathizers with them? How someone can proudly and publicly label somebody else a bigot because they believe what the vast majority of humanity presently and has always believed about marriage for millennia is beyond me. So apparently, America's understanding of marriage over the last two years, right, everyone before that has been a bigot. For real? You want to go there? And by the way, have you ever changed your mind because someone called you a bigot? Has that ever created a wall for dialogue? Has that ever been loving? I'm trying to think of any time I've ever called somebody a derogatory name to create shame around them that has ever made them feel more loved. If love wins, that feels like hate to me. Just a thought. People, I want you to hear this, with weak ideas resort to name-calling and defensiveness when their ideas are challenged. People with weak ideas resort to name-calling and defensiveness when their ideas are challenged, Christian or non-Christian. Children call each other names, not mature adults. So here's just a flat-out rule. Let's all grow up. And allow someone to disagree with you no matter where you're at on it. And don't start hauling names at them. How, like, that's what I have to rebuke my children for. Let me go back to my advice to my daughter. Make the world genuinely more beautiful by unconditional, beautiful love toward people who disagree with you. Can you do that? If you can't, you're either intolerant, not open-minded, or not loving, or all of the above. But the cultural values of the day, tolerance, open-mindedness, and love... If you really have those, well, then the dominant way that the LGBT community and the hyper-conservative fundamental base is handling this is not loving. Make sense? Good. Just trying to make everybody mad here. Number two, are you open-minded? Is it possible, Christian, non-Christian, everybody, that you are not the pinnacle human being who has achieved full understanding on this or any other subject. Is it possible your understanding on this issue is not complete? Let me just give you a small example. I am a Christian who loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every month, I could look back and my understanding and the depth of my um, love and appreciation for and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ gets deeper and it gets wider. I have yet to tap into the fullness of the riches and the glory and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you know what I am? I'm continually looking for ways to learn and to go deeper with the Lord. I am not the pinnacle human being. And so I want to put it back to you. Is it possible that the way you think and the way you feel and the way you live, that something in there might need to grow and adjust and shift a little bit? If it is, then my full expectation is that we can have a dialogue this morning and it will be well. Um, Number three, are you loving? Are you kind to those who are different than you? Just look on your Facebook. You'll know right away uh, what are the things that you want to say to people. Are you kind to those who are different than you? Do you love from your heart those who disagree with you on the things that you are most passionate about? If you cannot love someone who simply disagrees with you, you don't have the level of love that Jesus wants you to have yet. Okay? Love, true love, real love allows disagreement and does not condition their love on agreement. Somebody give me an amen on this one, right? Empathy. Number two, what is your authority? You know what empathy is, by the way? Look it up in your dictionary. That'll give you something to do when you get bored and your phone's here. 
What is your authority? We've got to answer this question. This is huge. This is huge. Um, everyone in this room believes what you believe because you have an authority in your life that determines what you believe. Everybody does. You believe what you believe because you have an authority in your life that determines what you believe. Christian, non-Christian, hyper-liberal, hyper-conservative. Everybody, okay? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to pick on everybody here, okay? So um, I want to make a statement to um, non-religious, non-Christians, okay? Here's, here's my statement for you. Um, your culture is your authority. And right now, you're thinking in your head, no, it's not. I make my own decisions. I think for myself. I am independent. I use my brain. No, you don't. Okay? I love you enough to tell you, no, you don't. Okay? It is not an accident. Hear me. You're by, don't shut off. You need to hear this, because I'm going to pick on Christians too, so just relax. It is not an accident that you share 99 or 97 or 98% of the values of pop culture right now. Okay? It is not an accident that you have conformed or been conformed to the majority of what the pop culture machine tells you is true and right and valuable. Okay? Why? Because you and I, we are human, and we are made to be deeply influenced by our culture. Now, some of you are thinking, you're still wrong, you can't prove it. I'll prove it to you. If you grew up in China, okay, if you grew up in China uh, or Russia or Africa, you would not, you would not have the same views and ideas and values that you do because you grew up in America, okay? There's an uh, illustration that I love. Uh, I learned it from DuckTales. Yes. Makes me so happy. You have no idea. I am bursting with joy right now. Um, and I've shared this with Vilchers in the past, and it's the lemming principle. So basically the folklore, um, true story, way back in the day in Scandinavia sometime, they found a bunch of dead lemmings at the bottom of the cliff. Okay? Folklore develops around this, and here's how the folklore developed. Uh, a lead lemming was going, and what lemmings apparently do in the folklore is they just mindlessly follow the person in front of them. What they don't know is that the lemming is going to go over the cliff to his death. So the lemmings are just mindlessly following, going, 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 they go over the cliff, and they and eventually end up dying. Okay? Here's what I found for non-religious, um, non-Christian Americans. We are lemmings. Okay? You are lemmings. You go over, you follow the person. Right? It's not an accident that five years ago you had different views on marriage, the majority of you, because what we're doing is we're shifting our beliefs based on what happens socially and culturally, and we mindlessly follow. I want to put all my cards on the table. I'm a lemming too. Okay? There's a difference. I have a different authority. Mine is Jesus. So I mindlessly follow Jesus wherever he leads me. Okay? So we're all lemmings to a degree. But here's what I want you to know. We are created to be subject to our culture. We are created to be influenced by it deeply, more powerfully than you can even understand. It is not an accident that your morals, values, ethics, values are centered in and consistent with the dominant morals and ethics of our culture. If you grew up in Iraq, do you think you would believe what you believe now? Answer? No. Why? Because you're a product of your culture, which is your authority. Now, you may do things a little bit different. You may have a few different ideas and justifications, but 97, 98, 99% of what you think is what our culture thinks. When the pop culture machine gets up and they celebrate something, there's something intuitively in you that goes, yeah, I'm going to celebrate that. Lemming, death. Okay? So that's the point. You need to own that, though. You need to understand you're a lemming. And if you ever want to challenge that, ask yourself, would I believe this if I grew up in a different culture? No, you wouldn't. Okay? You'd believe something totally different. Um, and here's what I, I just need you to understand. And Christians, here's what you need to get. When you open up the Bible to a non-Christian, 
A, they don't believe it. B, don't expect them to love it, like it, or submit to it, right? And it's not going to change their mind. It's not going to change their mind. We get up and we quote, quote scripture as if it's going to have some amazing impact. They're just going to change their mind because the Bible said it. If my six-year-old brings me a book and says, unicorns are real, Dad, and then I say, prove it. She brings me a fairy tale book that says, unicorns are real, am I going to believe it? No, that's basically how non-Christians, non-religious people respond to you opening up the Bible and quoting it to them. It doesn't work. Now, non-Christians, non-religious, all you people, I want you to just listen to me for a moment. I want you to empathize and put yourself in the shoes of a Christian, okay? My authority, although I am culturally a millennial American, right? My heart culture is your heart, heart culture. I want, like you want, um, fair game on all sexual activity. I don't want anybody to be told not to do anything that doesn't make them happy. I want love to win here and there and everywhere. However you want to define love, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. That's what I want, okay? But here's the problem. I committed to following Jesus. And here's what happens. As my culture shifts, God's word remains stable. And so when my culture butts up against God's word as a follower of Christ, I am obligated to call sin what he calls sin and to follow him wherever he will lead me no matter how difficult God's word is in that particular respective culture. Understand? So what you need to understand about the Christian is, although I am cultural like you are, my culture is not my authority. Okay? My authority is the Bible as it's written in its context. We'll get there and talk about that in a moment. Okay? And that's what you need to understand. What motivates me is not hatred. What motivates me is not bigotry. What motivates me is not animus. What motivates me is I am subject, because I'm a Christ follower, to follow whatever Jesus says, despite what my culture says is good and right. It's a matter of authority. And in the same way, I'm not going to go to you and ask you to not believe what you believe. Don't ask me to change my authority either and to believe what you believe. For the Christian, our entire life is submitted. Our culture, our sin, all the junk we bring to the table, which is a lot, we bring it to Jesus, and he writes in the the written word exactly what he wants for us, and we bend the knee to it. So as a Christian, if God says, hey, um, uh, heterosexual lust is sin, I know you have that, I know you want it, I know it's ingrained in the very fabric of your being because you're a male heterosexual who has a sin nature, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try as hard as I can, even though my culture tells me it's okay to look at porn and to lust and do whatever, because God's word says it's not, I'm going to fight it with all my might. Because even though my body wants it and my culture says it's okay, I am under the ultimate authority as a follower of Jesus of his word, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. And every culture, you know, they have different values, and the word of God butts against every culture in a different way from generation to generation and place to place and country to country. We just happen to live here in America. Uh, Here's what I want you to just ultimately understand. If you're not a Christian, your authority is your culture. Uh, A non-religious, non-Christian. And if you are a follower of Jesus, your authority is supposed to be the word of God. Now, non-Christian, when you see a Christian who's a hypocrite, expect it. Because one of the basic tenets of Christianity is not that we're good, but that we are sinners, bad, rebellious. And so part of being a Christian is the lifelong pursuit of conforming my life to the values of Jesus It is not one where I am automatically, I come to Christ, and therefore now I'm officially following every one of his rules perfectly. Do you understand that? And so here's what you need to understand, non-Christian, is you engage the Christian, is that we are imperfect people who have committed our life to a pursuit of obeying God's word, no matter what it says, even and especially when it butts up against what pop culture says is good and right in the day. Does that make sense?
Following me? Good. Number three. What is marriage? I want to talk historically, politically, culturally. I want to give you that definition. Then we'll talk biblically. Uh, Historically, politically, culturally, marriage has generally been elastic. And I want to explain this before you get out of your seats and throw something at me. Um, But at its core, even though it stretches from culture to culture, at its core, historically, legally, culturally, this is not even negotiable, by the way. This is fact. So, I mean, this this shouldn't offend anybody because it is what it is. Uh, At its core, from generation to generation, culture to culture, country to country, continent to continent, by and large, for 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years, marriage has been this. A man and a woman and a lifelong commitment. So, pop quiz. If a man and a woman commit to a heterosexual sexual relationship for 10 years, they sign a covenant, and then at the end of the 10 years, they decide no matter what, come hell or high water, we will part ways, is that marriage? No, because marriage, from culture to culture, generation to generation, on continent to continent, is a man and a woman and a lifelong commitment for the rest of their lives. Okay? So, culture to culture... That's the foundation, okay, up until the last maybe 15 years, right, two years in America-ish. Um, but uh, here's what I want you to understand. It changes in different cultures. So, for example, some cultures have, have not required consent for marriage, right? Some cultures have not required age restraints. Same foundation core elements, man, woman, lifelong commitment, right? But they express it differently from culture to culture. Even America... Our legal understanding of marriage clearly has shifted, especially as we've seen in the last couple weeks. Um, But we no longer practice arranged marriages. Coverture is a a legal um, uh, uh, doctrine that we no longer practice, that when a woman marries a man, she loses all of her rights to own property. Um, All of her rights are subsumed under the authority of her husband. We don't do that anymore. There's no longer any state bans on interracial marriage. So legally, even how we understand the elasticity of marriage in America has shifted over the last couple hundred years. Do you understand that? Right? But at its core, until recently, it has had at its foundation the man, the woman, lifelong commitment. Okay? Um, but here's what we're seeing is that politically, culturally, marriage is taking on new arenas, and we don't really know where it's going to end. But that's on a political level. But, y'all, if the, if the government says something and God says something, who do we submit to? God. Okay, good. That's because we're Christians. Let's talk about biblically what is marriage. If you're not a believer in Jesus... You do not need to be offended at this. I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't believe the Bible anyways. Okay? So don't be offended by something you don't believe anyways. Um, But at the very least, I think what you should do is take this as an opportunity to learn what Christians believe so you can speak to us intelligently and win us to your side. Okay? If that's what you really want to do, if you want to win us, learn what we think, learn why we think it, and then have a conversation with us based on that. That's what mature adults, I think, would do if they're going to try to win each other. So biblical marriage is a willing, lifelong covenant between a man and a woman with the explicit intention of increasing our joy by. One man, one woman, lifelong commitment, increasing our joy by. Re-imaging Jesus' love for the church and the church's submission to Jesus through gender roles. Gender is very, very sacred and special to Christians. Why? Because we we don't like transitioning people or the LGBT community. It has nothing to do with that because it's sacred to the Bible. That's it. Um, I understand and I see what culture says, but when culture butts up against the Word of God, who do Christians submit to? The Word of God. And so what we find here is that when you get married, the Christian is committing themselves 
to re-imaging Jesus' love, picturing this, putting this on full display for people, Jesus' love for the church and the church's submission to Jesus through specific gender roles. Super valuable to Christians. So if you got married recently or ever, like you need to go back and say, wow, I got married and God made marriage so that I would do this. Number two, repopulating the world with kids who love Jesus. Can I get an amen? Statistically, if you grew up in a Christian home, your kids are more likely to follow Jesus, but God made marriage so that little children who love Jesus would grow up and they would have little children who love Jesus and the world would be repopulated with a bunch of little kids who love Jesus. So when you made marriage, did you get to come into this covenant and say, I don't want kids, therefore I will not have kids? As a Christian, you can't do that. As a Christian, you get married right, to reimage Jesus and to attempt to repopulate the earth. Now, if you have infertility or different things like that, those are real. Sin has made all of this terribly difficult. Amen? Oh, my gosh. Um, but our intentions remain, number three, to restrain sexual immorality. I don't care who you are. It is hard to be single. You could be 80 and single, 50 and single, 15 and single. It is just hard. And one of the blessings that God has given us is the freedom of sexuality in the context of marriage to restrain sexual immorality. And then number four. Love this word. I want to just give you a big word here. Synergistically. Again, look it up on your iPhone if you don't know what that is. Androids, you probably won't find it. Synergistically (laughs) increasing our Great Commission effectiveness. So go back to the garden, right? Adam was given a helper. And you know what she helped him with? The mission. In the garden, the mission was to populate the earth, tend to the garden, have dominion. Now, what is the mission of God's people? Make disciples. That's it. And so when you get married, you get a helper who comes along. And what is your mission that they are called to come alongside and help you with? Make disciples. So catch this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you got married, or should have, and if your premarital didn't deal with it, get a different premarital counselor. Reimaging Jesus' love for the church repopulating the world, restraining sexual immorality, or synergistically increasing our Great Commission effectiveness. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you're the non-Christian in the room, and you're looking at your Christian friends and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't lead your wife. She doesn't submit to you. You've postponed children because you don't have enough money. Um, And, like, honestly, you're as addicted to porn as the next guy, and I haven't really heard you sharing the gospel with anybody. So, like, is that Christian marriage? And let me just tell you, that's not Christian marriage. Okay? Christian marriage upholds the things that marriage was intended to uphold. Okay? And so here's what we find. Christians, your non-Christian friends are looking at the majority of you, and they're like, you're not serious. This does not picture Christ in the church. This is not about the things that marriage is ultimately about. And they have legitimate reasons to be skeptical. Am I right? right? Are we doing a great job generally as the American church with our marriages? I mean, so many of us are broken to the core, and there's so much more at stake here. Uh, what is marriage? Biblically, like, that's, that's what marriage is. So if you want to change, non-Christian, LGBT, support, whatever you are, if you want to change the Christian's mind on marriage, will the best and brightest cultural arguments of the day win us? No, because that's not our authority. If you want to win us and change our understanding of marriage, You need to, I just encourage you to do this. Open up scripture, study it, and teach us from God's word why the Bible has maybe been misunderstood. That's what I would encourage you to do. And in the same way, I'm not going to try Christians. Don't go to your non-Christian friends and try to Bible thump them. It's not going to work. It doesn't help them think better, okay? Um, We need to figure out better ways to communicate with each other. Make sense?
You can say yes, it does make sense. For the Christian, marriage transcends culture. Okay? The government can say whatever they want for the Christian, but as, as soon as the government disagrees with God, the Christians say, sorry, we don't submit. That's not what God says. And we're not trying to be belligerent. It's just we have a higher authority than the government. Number four, a short but difficult Bible lesson. Now let's get really messy. Okay, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. And we're going to address some of your hesitations. You're going to be hearing this, and you're going to say, but, 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 and I'm going to try to address all the buts that I think you're going to say. Um, and uh, here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian, okay, um, I want you to just listen, and I want you to soak this up a little bit. If you're a non-Christian, just because the Bible doesn't say something you like, again, I want to look at you and say, who cares? You don't agree with it anyways. Like, it's fine, okay? Um, let it say what it says. And don't get all worked up because the Bible says, honestly, what you already know, it says, okay? So, like, if any of you are surprised by what it says, then you haven't read your Bible, okay? All right, good. Um, so, I want to teach you four Bible, le- like, Bible interpretation lessons that if you could get these would make my life, like, if the whole world could get these things, man, my life would be so much easier and Facebook would be way smarter, okay? So, number one, the Old Covenant was fulfilled and replaced by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You may not know what the Old Covenant is, okay? A covenant is a promise or a contract, or think about it like a constitution, if you will. Um, Before Jesus, there was the people of Israel, and God made a covenant or a contract or instituted a constitution with these people, with rules and laws, whatnot, okay? And it was called the Old Covenant. Inside the Old Covenant were promises that one day this covenant would go away and a new covenant would come. That's why it's called the Old Covenant. If you were a Jew living under the Old Covenant, did you expect that one day this covenant would go away? Your answer is yes, because in the covenant itself are rules and stipulations that look forward to the day when this covenant will become obsolete. And so what happens is um, Jesus comes, fulfills the covenant, fulfills the laws, and he inaugurates and issues a new covenant. This is why this is important, okay? Because some of you will say the following. Well, in the Old Testament, it says that um, you cannot eat shellfish, have sex on your period, or eat pork. So therefore, if you don't apply those rules, then you're just inconsistent, and you're picking and choosing the scriptures you want to pick. Okay. With all the love I can muster, I just want you all to listen carefully. If you're listening on the podcast, you can yell at me in the car, okay? You don't sound smart. Because you're saying something that isn't true, and that is telling me and any other semi-literate Christian, you don't know how to read the Bible, okay? So before you start, like, attacking Christians with Scripture, like, learn what it means and what it actually says. No literate Christian would ever believe that we can't have pork or eat shellfish or whatever else, or that we'd follow any of the Old Covenant laws, because part of a Christian understanding Uh, of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is that it's fulfilled and it's done. Let me read you some scriptures. Ephesians 2.15, Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Abolished means done, gone, right? Uh, Romans 7.6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Hebrews 8.13, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You guys get that? 
So there was an old covenant. Jesus came, instituted a new covenant. When he institutes the new covenant, the old covenant is gone. So is the old covenant good? Yes. Can we learn about God, the history of God's people, God's values, etc.? Yes. But does God intend in the new covenant era for us to take old covenant laws and apply them to the church? The answer is no. There's a new covenant, which is point number two. We are under a new law, a new covenant. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, began to teach the New Covenant principles. The apostles in the New Testament letters came in, clarified, answered questions and dilemmas that came up, and brought clarity to issues of the day. Okay? So if you want to sound smart, and you want to win me as a semi-literate Christian of the Bible, will you argue, well, you're not consistent because you eat shellfish? No, that's not going to help. I'm going to say, you don't really understand me. Like, I feel like you're not listening. I feel like you don't know me, because you don't. Okay? If you want to know how to understand and interpret the Bible, you need to go to the New Testament for morals and ethics and solidify your foundation there. We all know and have heard the verses that the Old Testament says about homosexuality and homosexual acts. Okay, great. Um, My question right now is, does the New Testament affirm, confirm, or shift or change that? And we're going to get to that in a moment. But number one, we are under a new law, so you have to understand that. Go to the new law or the New Testament to actually duke it out with me intellectually and change my mind on this. Okay. Uh, number three, the Bible does not pick on homosexuality. I wish I could just like erase this concept from people's minds. Uh, it does not pick on homosexuality, but in fact goes after heterosexual lust and sin significantly more, like a hundredfold more. Here's what I love about the Bible. It picks on everybody. Like, everybody. You look at porn, pick on you. You lust, picks on you. Secrets, picks on you. Like, you committed adultery, majorly picks on you. I mean, it picks on everybody. You steal, you lie, you cheat, you fib, you do whatever. It picks on you. The Bible picks on people. You know why? It's revealing to us our brokenness and our need for a Savior. And so, here's the deal. Does the Bible pick on heterosexual sin? Yes. Does the Bible pick on lust? Answer, yes. Does the Bible pick on adultery? Yes. Does the Bible pick on homosexuality, homosexual practice? Answer, yes. It's not like a mystery. Like, this isn't like a brand new idea. Wait, the Bible says that? Like, if you don't know what the Bible says on this yet, then you haven't read your Bible. I want to ask, why do you even believe what you believe? Right? Who's telling you these things? And so one of our obligations is to read the Bible and read it well. Number four, here's our little Bible lesson. We're going to open up to Romans 1. The text will be on here so you can just watch this. And this is, um, I would say, one of the most clear, compelling, difficult, right? Some of you aren't going to like this, and that's fine. The only reason you're not going to like this is if you don't like the Bible. But again, if you don't like the Bible, don't worry about it, because you don't believe it anyways. So, uh, but now you can at least step back and say, with knowledge, here's what the Bible actually says about this and some other issues. So it starts off, and it says, for this reason, God gave them, see the purple? Them. Up to dishonorable passions, Is dishonorable passions a good thing? No. I mean, we don't know what it's going to talk about yet, but whatever dishonorable passions is, that's no good. Here's my question. Who is them? And so we go to the verses before, and here's who them is, if I can say that. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So they are people who have a knowledge of who Jesus is, but don't trust in him. That's Paul's context, okay? And here's what it says. Um, What did God do to them? But they became futile in their thinking. So they knew who God was. They rejected him. So God gave them over to this called futility or useless or this ridiculous thinking. 
Um, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Passive. Who is darkening their hearts? Answer? God. God is giving them over to this and darkening them, claiming to be wise, which is what, honestly, don't both sides of the equation say, I am wise, I am smart, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Okay, that's who they is. They is people who reject Jesus, and because they reject Jesus, Jesus gives them over to a sinful mind, and that's what they do, okay? So now let's go back to the verse 26. For this reason, God gave them, those who reject Jesus, up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. If you just stopped here and cut it off, we wouldn't probably totally know what they're talking about. This one sentence, it's a little elusive, it's a little unclear. Thankfully, the next sentence brings us more clarity. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Pop quiz. Um, is heterosexual lust shameless before God? Answer, yes. Is a heterosexual adultery shameless before God? Answer, yes. Is pornography um, uh, shameless before God? Answer, yes. Is homosexual behavior uh, shameless before God? Yes. You could stop right now and be like, he just picked out on homosexuals and just went after them. I mean, Paul in this letter is going to deal with so many different kinds of sexual perversions. He picks on everyone, but that's not what we're talking about today. What does the Bible actually, in its context, simply say about this issue? Okay? That's what it says. Now, it does not say, give any ex- exclusions, like unless they're in a monogamous committed relationship. It doesn't say, like, except in the context of marriage. The reason it doesn't do that is the same reason it doesn't talk about unicorns. And the reason it doesn't talk about unicorns is because it's not real in its mind. The Bible doesn't have categories for its existence, so it doesn't address it or talk about it or legitimize it as real. Does that make sense? So the authors of the Bible, right, inspired by God, um, honestly, let's think about it this way. Like, is Jesus omniscient? Answer? Yeah. Did Jesus know this was going to be an issue in a hot button? Like, do you think when he inspired these writings, he could have back then made this a non-issue for us now? He, He could have, in a heartbeat, but he didn't because this is not what's on God's mind. So if you're not a Christian, don't worry, okay? Like, don't, stop getting so upset that Christians actually think this. No Christian in this room, maybe there's one or two, um, and you might be the bigot, but very few Christians in this room really, really, really step back and go, yay, like I'm going to make everybody mad. Nobody wants to make everybody mad. We're, we're stuck. We're stuck between what our culture says is good and what God's word says is good, and we're at a crossroads, and every time we have to bend the knee to Scripture. And so when you talk to your Christian friend, they're not filled usually with hate and animus and they're afraid of you and they want you out of society, all this other stuff that we hear said said about us. They're stuck and they're hitting a crossroads and they have submitted their entire lives, every aspect, under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ and his written word. And we are bound by that. In the same way, I cannot ask you to change your mind on this issue just because I say so or I don't like it or I call you a name. And so we're stuck here. But I think what can happen is you can understand what really motivates the Christian here. All right, so I want to talk about A few other things here. Um, You may reject this if you are a Christian, but you have to do it in two ways, okay? The only way you can actually honestly read the New Testament and say God gives a thumbs up and celebrates homosexual behavior is if you say one of the two following things. Number one, the Bible is not my sole authority. 
Because if the Bible is your sole authority, you just, I mean, try as hard as you can, you can. That's why people do these, um, we call it hermeneutical loops, these interpretive loops around text, trying to force it to say something it doesn't say. Honestly, if you just look at it on the surface, you cannot get away from it. And the only way you can call yourself a Christian and get away from this understanding, which is clear, is to say, I don't believe in the Bible as, as the sole authority over my life. Or, number two, you say this. Um, the Bible's morals are culturally subjective, meaning that they change from culture to culture, and that this was the moral that God set in place for first century Rome, or first century Roman Empire. And if you're going to go there, I mean, you are going to, literally what you're saying is everything is up for interpretation. Like, you have no rules at this point. You can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, uh, but that is not the way we interpret scripture. That is not the way it was intended to be written or understood. Um, you have two options. Deny the authority of Christ or make the moral subjective. Here's what I want to just tell you. If you are going to be a Christ follower and claim to obey Jesus and to love his word, before you take a liberal position on this, open up the Bible and justify it. And the reason I say that is because for 2,000 years, the vast majority of that, up until, honestly, 50 years ago, that, uh, and even the last 15 years ago, the vast majority of Christendom has understood this uh, the simple conservative understanding of marriage to be true and right. And so if you are going to enter into Christianity, claim the name of Jesus, and change what Christians have believed for 2,000 years all over the world, all, from culture to culture, continent to continent, please open up the Bible. Uh, the burden of proof is on you. Uh, and before you get up and speak publicly about this, please justify it with Scripture to yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get in over your head very, very quickly. I say that with all the love that I can possibly muster up. Now, there is a phrase. If I could just eradicate this phrase from the face of the earth, right, I would be so happy. You ready? This is what I call the great justification. And when you say this, I want you to hear me, you make Christians so mad. They won't say it and they won't show it to you, but this is like the one thing that we're like, oh, stop saying this. Okay. So here it is. Ready? You listening? There are a number of ways to interpret the Bible. Who's to say like yours is right? Bashing my head against the wall, Okay. For 2,000 years, there have been essentials that almost every single 99.9% .9 of Christians have agreed upon. Jesus is God. Agreement? Yes. Jesus fully man also? Agreement. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life? Agreed. Died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead, coming back to judge living the dead? Agreed. Right? Um, adultery is sin. Agreed? Agreed. Lust is sin? Agreed. Homosexual behavior is sin according to God's word? Agreed. It has been standard. Okay? And so when you come in and you start throwing this around, this is the free-for-all word. This is your way of saying, I don't want to actually study God's word, be held accountable to what it says. That's what you're actually saying. So get that statement out of your vocabulary because God's word means what it says. And yes, there are some very difficult passages and people do disagree. But on the main things like this, this is easy. The only way you can get around this is to do hoops around the text and make it say something the authors clearly never intended it to mean. Um, so as I say that, please just take that out of your vocabulary because any kind of literate Christian hears that and they know the conversation is over. That's what they know. And so I know when I hear that, like I have nowhere else to go with you because you could justify anything under that rubric. If you're not a Christian, I just want to say again, don't get worked up. You don't believe it anyways. <laughs> so it's okay. You know, I mean, just relax. Um, I want to talk to you. Now I have three conclusions. You ready? Go through all that. Good, good. Um, I want, to, I want to just talk to homosexuals for one moment. 
Uh, at the Village Church, I can say for almost all of us here, yes, there are going to be one or two people who may be a bigot and may not be nice to you. Please don't judge me based on their inappropriate behavior. Um, but here's what I want you to know. We truly, from the bottom of our hearts, without any pretense, love you. Period. Unconditionally. We do not hate you. We are not bigots. We're not afraid of you in any way, shape, or form. We do not want you out of society. We do not want you to be unloved. I, I mean, there's no conditions to those statements. They are just fact. You are loved. You are welcome here. You're welcome to come in. You're welcome. You're welcome here. We love you. We need to hear that. Not one ounce of hatred toward you. And if you see that in someone in our church, just come talk to me because I would love to confront them and say, hey, like, eradicate anything like that out of your life now. You're welcome here. I know, I may not agree with what you, what you believe, but I know that your motives are good. Your intention is not to do evil because we both value and want to see the world as beautiful as it can be and God's redemption to enter into every part of this world. We can start there, and I want you to know that I'm not demonizing you at all. Um, in fact, I know your motives are good. I will not stereotype you. Um, I will get to know you on your own merits, and just because there are generalizations around the LGBT community, I will not transfer those to you, but get to know you personally and love you unconditionally and let you stand in your own merit. And I want to ask if you would do the same for me. And just because there are some crazy Christians, would you get to know me on my own merits and love me unconditionally? My question for you is, what is your authority? Own it and know it so you can be aware of why you're feeling what you feel and why you believe what you believe. Know that for me as a Christian... My authority is the word of God. And if you want to change that, I invite you anytime to open up scripture and dialogue with me on scripture. I want to encourage you to be very aware of the lemming effect. Um, because if culture is your authority, um, many cultures throughout human history have quickly gone down grotesque roads. And you need to make sure you're not that. Cultures in Germany and China and Russia and America on different issues have had lemming effects that have led the vast majority of populations to agree to believe despicable things that hurt many, many people. Make sure you are not a lemming mindlessly walking off a cliff to your death. Don't just buy into it because your culture says it. I want you to understand the Christian that does not support gay marriage does not hate you. And if they do, they have major issues. I want you to hear a Christian distinctive that I am learning is becoming less and less a distinctive of the non-religious, non-Christian community. And here's the Christian distinctive. We truly believe that we can disagree with who you are on the things you are most passionate about, and that does not change our love for you, our ability to have a friendship with you, our ability to eat together, play together, be loyal to each other, and have a lifelong friendship. So apparently what I've watched happen, and I think you'll understand this as soon as you hear this, that for the emerging LGBT community, there is this mindset that unless you accept this in me, I reject you. That is hate, bullying, manipulation, and coercion. It is not love. Love says I love you no matter what you believe, no matter where you're at, and I will love you and be kind to you unconditionally. And so for the Christian, here, here's the deal. Um, you, let's say you're not a Christian. Here's what you're telling me by, not, by being not a Christian. You fundamentally disagree with the most singular, important 
thing in my life. And yet you still want me to love you. So can I disagree with the singular most important thing in your life and still love you? And so here's what we as Christians understand. We have the capacity, because it's built into our faith, to have bold, strong, heated disagreements coupled with unconditional love. I want to know, can you do the same with us? Because culturally speaking, your community, the general vibe of the community is saying, no, you can't. I believe you really can. If you're going to be open-minded, tolerant, loving, it requires you to be okay with people who disagree with you. But you need to know this. Just because your culture is not does not mean you get to transfer that to Christians. We, we can. I love people who are different than me. I love duking it out with people who are different than me. I love talking with a couple homosexual guys in my life when we get together regularly. We just duke it out, you know? But we have the capacity to have friendship because our love for each other is not conditioned on agreement. It is conditioned on we both believe we are valuable to God because God made us, and we can love no matter what that person believes or doesn't believe. And maybe I am a bigot. Maybe there is somebody here who is a bigot. I can still love you even though you're a bigot. I don't need you to love me the way I want to be loved for me to love you unconditionally. That is a Christian distinctive. My prayer is that we as Christians, as we do that, would rub off on the rest of the communities that are watching us. There is an unfortunate culture that is building. So I was talking with two boys in my neighborhood, um, college kids who are conservative Christians for the most part. And I said, do you feel comfortable talking about what you really believe on this issue? And they said, no way, not at all, not on Facebook, not with my friends. Why? Because we will be publicly and privately ridiculed and mocked if we do. So I just want to ask LGBT communities, we're talking to the group, this group here, is that loving? Do you want people to be so afraid of you that they sit in silence and are afraid to be truly honest with you? I can't think of any loving relationship uh, that I would say where people are afraid to tell me the truth because they're afraid I'm going to berate them or mock them or create an atmosphere of shame around them. That is not love. That is not kindness. Love does not win when you do that. So I just want to challenge you. Can you love me even though we disagree on the most fundamental part of your life? Because I will love you even though you disagree with me on the most fundamental part of my life, which is Jesus. A word to non-Christians who support homosexual marriage. No, I want to go back to the last group. Sorry, go back. Last one. My greatest desire for you, truly, is not that your mind would be changed. Because obviously I didn't try to change your mind. I'm trying to just communicate what is. I'm trying to help you empathize with Christians. I have one desire for you, that you would come to know and trust in Jesus Christ. That's it. My desire for you is that you would see the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the love, the kindness of Jesus. You'd be so compelled by him that you would come to him and you would confess your sin and you would trust in him. And that when you open up his word, um, despite what your body and culture want, you would submit every aspect of your life under the lordship of the word of God in your life. Because that's what a Christian who follows Jesus does. Despite how hard it is, we submit because he and his word is our authority. That's my desire for you. My desire for you not right now is not that you leave and change your mind. My desire is that you would know Jesus and you would come to him and then you guys can do work on this issue separately. A word to non-Christians who support homosexual marriage. Um, I know you believe this is a matter of justice and I believe it is a matter of justice also. Um, and I just want to let you know I honor that. And I appreciate your desire for beauty, for righteousness. I appreciate your desire to eradicate a lack of love and to eradicate hate and bigotry wherever you find it. I think that is a noble pursuit at its core. And I just want to let you know, I honor that. I appreciate that. Even though we may not see that in the same light, 
that is a spark of the image of God in you, that love for justice and beauty. I just want to affirm that with you. Bring your ideas. Talk about them. Disagree with me. I love it when people disagree. I am not so insecure that I can't handle different ideas, right? Um, Bring up your ideas. Wherever you're at on this issue or with Jesus, you're safe here to process and dialogue. Just don't be a bully, and we can have great discussions. Um, I want you to know that we accept you wherever you're at. You're welcome to come to church here. You're welcome to talk with me, have dinner with me, have coffee with me, dialogue. We love you unconditionally, no strings attached, whether or not you agree or you disagree. You're welcome to come to church here at the village. You're welcome here. Is that clear? You're welcome. We love you without condition. I want to have a word to Christians who publicly support homosexual marriage. I love you. Don't get me wrong. Um, but as a brother in Christ, we can have harder words with each other. I have, the Bible says, have no um, judgment or con- condemning judgment for those who are not Christians. I've got no judgment for those who are not Christians. None whatsoever. No condemnation. You and God can work out your thing. I want to talk to my brothers and sisters who claim the name of Jesus and support homosexual marriage. And I want to say a couple things. Number one, you are the most difficult for me for a couple reasons. And um, I don't understand what Bible you're reading all the time. That's, that's really my frustration. So I want to I help categorize you, if I could. I have a couple different categories, and since you're Christians, I can talk to you a little more boldly, right? Um, I found a couple different versions of you, and you can figure out which one you are. Number one, you simply have not read the Bible very much, but repeat things you've heard from others. How do I know this? Because you say things that just aren't in the Bible, right? And so stop saying things that aren't in the Bible. Well, how do I know they're not in the Bible? Start reading the Bible. Uh, Number two, you might be this one. You have not been taught simple biblical interpretation methods, so you naturally misinterpret the Bible. So go back to those four simple things that we talked about earlier and just apply those and then read the Bible in light of that, then quote the Bible, because when you quote the Bible out of context, you do a disservice to people who aren't Christians, and you don't look very smart in front of people who are Christians, and it's very hard to have a real dialogue with you. Uh, This is another group, and I want to just call this out because this is important. There is a group of deeply compassionate Christians. Like, your gifts of mercy and compassion are through the roof. And your LGBT friends, you love them, and there is such a strong pull to honor them um, that it is just so strong. And I want to just call that out and say, I think there are some people who avoid reading the Bible sometimes in this issue because they're afraid of what it's going to say because they so deeply love their friends who are in this community. I want to affirm your love, and I want to tell you this. Love without truth is hate. Truth without love is a lie. And so we need to transcend this and somehow figure out how do you still be as compassionate and loving and close and kind and caring and at the same time be able to look at God's word and just own it for what it truly says. Um, Possibly you might just be simply a cultural Christian. It's possible. Mostly here's, here's here's the kind of person I find. You are a skeptical intellectual who has rejected a biblical definition of marriage based on philosophy and books rather than on scripture itself. So like you're responding to someone's article who's responding to someone's article who's responding to someone's article and yet we have not opened up scripture and said, no, I reject the simple, clear, historic understanding of this text. Get out of books and philosophy and get into the text and reject the biblical definition of marriage based on the biblical text. Because as a Christian, my sole authority are not the cultural ideas bouncing back and forth through the intellectuals. My sole authority is the clear, revealed word of God in scripture. Make sense? Okay. So if you're this person, um, I'm going to put up a post on Facebook, on the church site and on my site, 
And it's an article that Kevin DeYoung, a pastor um, in Lansing, Michigan, wrote about 40 questions for Christians who um, support um, gay marriage and support the SCOTUS decision. I want to just ask you, would you be so humble as to read it? Um, Because what it's going to do, it's going to ask the questions that you need to ask. I'll give you a few of these questions so you can have these. How long have you believed that gay marriage is something to be celebrated? You've got to answer that, because for most Christians who support this, it is a very recent transition. What Bible verse led you to change your mind? Specifically, you, need it. you can't just pass by that. You've got to stop at that question, open up the Bible, and you've got to show us that. How would you make a positive case from Scripture that sexual activity between two persons of the same sex is a blessing to be celebrated? If you can do that, open up the Bible, and let's, let's do that. Um, we'll keep going to do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Um, as you think about the long history of the church and the near universal disapproval of same-sex sexual activity, what do you think you understand now about the Bible that Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and Luther failed to grasp? What arguments would you use to explain to Christians in Africa, Asia, and South America that their understanding of homosexuality is biblically incorrect and your new understanding of homosexuality is not culturally conditioned? Do you think Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were motivated by personal animus and bigotry when they, for almost all of their lives, defined marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman? And the questions are all very spot on for those who are going to claim the banner of Jesus Christ and support the SCOTUS decision in this, okay? So I won't read them all. We'll go on. And now we're going to end with a couple things. A word to Christians. Number one, you better have the most awesome marriages on the planet. Okay? Hear me. If your marriage is broken and in shambles, before you start yelling at everybody else, get your house in order. Because the whole world is watching, and one of the greatest things that you can do for generations to come to preserve a conservative biblical definition of marriage is to have an amazing marriage that other people see and say, I want that. That will be the most influential way you can pass on the biblical definition of marriage. Okay? Singles. Abstain from sexual immorality on every single account that you can possibly find. Eradicate it from your lives. Nobody believes your false conviction on this issue when your personal private life is filled with sexual immorality. We see right through it. So that's all I'll say to Christians. I want to close with some personal things. Pastors, so so what for like guys like me? So can I just bring you into my world for a moment? You guys, I know it's long, but you know what? We got one of these. I'm not going to do this over two weeks, so we'll live, right? Good. Last thing I'm going to do is stop in the middle, like... And then leave you guys awake to not hear the end. Fights. Um, so there is a massive legal war gearing up in the courts. I don't know if you're aware of that. Have you read the news at all? Like it's around. Um, this is just the beginning. Um, people want to take away tax exemptions from churches and nonprofits. Let me just tell you what will happen if that goes down. Liberal churches will close. And conservative Christians will amp up their giving and sacrifice. That's what will happen. Um, don't be afraid. Christians, no fear. This what can a government do? Really? Put me in jail and kill me. Good. I mean, honestly, I know that sounds like whatever, but like for a Christian, have you read the Bible? Have you heard what's going on in China? Have you seen what's happened? Have you read history? Like, welcome to reality, okay? Um, so relax. Uh, if they take away your tax exemptions, pitch a fit, uh, vote, do whatever you can do within this jurisdiction, talk. Um, but you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, the church is going to get stronger, Every time you push the church down, the church grows. That's all it does. So my expectation is that the church, even just through this simple ruling, is going to grow by leaps and bounds, especially. 
Um, legal wars to declare nonconformity as hate speech. Mind-blowing that this is even possible, but that if I don't preach a liberal agenda, or if I preach contrary to it, it could be illegal and designated as hate speech. Um, declare nonconformity as a legitimate basis for legal action. Like, for real. So if I preach this message in a year or two or three or five, I could go to jail? For real? Is that what you want? Do you really, liberal community, want to shut down every voice that doesn't agree with your voice? Are you that insecure? Really? I mean, just mind-blowing to me. But that's the possible future that we're moving toward, uh, elevation of erotic liberties over religious liberties. And, um, but you know what? You don't have to freak out, because we have no idea how it's going to pan out. Because crazy things about to happen in culture come one way, then they go another way. We had Roe versus Wade. Abortion gets this huge issue. And now the tides of culture have actually changed where the majority of people now believe abortion is wrong and murder. I mean, it's interesting how one generation, as we see the world going liberal, can take something and it can change in generations. To come. I mean, it's amazing how this happens. Don't freak out. Nothing has happened too badly yet beyond what we've already seen. Um, for me personally, Pasquale and Rachel, their wedding was probably the last legal marriage that I will perform. Um, I, I just literally can't do anymore. The state and the church have always had this beautiful partnership where um, we were able to marry people on behalf of the state. But now if I continue to do that and a same-sex couple asks me to marry them and violate what the scripture tells me I can't do, now I could be sued. The church could be sued. I could go to jail. I could be given fines of $100,000 or plus more money. Like, it's ridiculous. So... The fact that we've even gotten there um, tells you that there's something wrong in this whole thing here. But um, personally, um, right now, we're having to make shifts on what I will and will not do, what the pastors of Village Church will and will not do. And so temporarily, we can probably do a communal wedding, but you'll still have to go to the um, state to get a state license. You'll still have to go to the court to get that done. And we may do communal weddings for members of Village Church only. We have to keep it small and tight and cozy. But that's how pathetic this has gotten. That's how pathetic it is. And on another level, um, we no longer, um, it seems, have the right or freedom to put out open job descriptions or open job positions because if anybody applies that is the same-sex um, attraction or living that lifestyle that doesn't agree with our values or the Bible's values, then we could get sued for discrimination. So like on a personal level, I want you to understand the implications for this. Um, we can only hire on, on invitations only. No open job positions will ever happen again which means that communication from the elders to the members of the village church is going to be lessened significantly when it comes to new hires. And our desire is to have open, awesome dialogue with all y'all, but as long as this heated environment is going on, there are some things that will actually have to remain private for a period, and then we can let you know publicly when something has happened. Otherwise, we are opening ourselves wide open for lawsuits. And if the, if the, if the laws shift or change, then we can change our approaches, but seemingly that's where it's going to have to be. You know what, come lawsuits, slander, jail, tax status, change. I mean, here's the deal. Without fear, I will preach everything the Bible preaches. So will every pastor of this church put me in jail? I don't care. Charge the church money. If they want to fine us $1,000 every time we preach a sermon on something the Bible clearly talks about, charge us money. We'll go bankrupt. We'll do whatever we have to do. Okay? Um, have no fear. Seriously. Like, there's nothing you need to be afraid of. Jesus is the Lord of history. He's the Lord of governments. He's the Lord of kings and emperors and presidents and, and Supreme Court justices. He's the Lord. He allows, ordains, or permits all things that have happened in human history. And so you and I can just relax. We can do the things that are within our boundaries, have amazing marriages, vote where we can, um, have awesome single relationships that are filled with sexual purity and God-honoring relationships.